In preparation for our reading from the ninth chapter of Luke, our Old Testament passage today is a single verse from the twelfth chapter of Genesis, the first verse of Genesis 12, which opens the story of Abraham. After Genesis 12, verse 1, we'll turn to Luke 9, 57 to 62. This is the word of God, the twelfth chapter of Genesis, uh, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Luke 9, verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open our eyes today to the commitment to which you call us, who follow Jesus Christ, or make a claim to. Build your kingdom, we pray. Use these means of grace before us. Apply them by your Spirit, and open our eyes and our ears. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We began following our Lord Jesus Christ on his journey from Galilee, on southward toward Jerusalem, And if we've been listening to him along the way, we know very well what awaits him there at the end of his journey and our journey together. We know what's waiting for him in Jerusalem because he keeps telling us. Ever since our recent confession of faith in the Lord Jesus, that he is the very Christ of God, he's been drumming it into us, hasn't he? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's the core meaning of his Messiahship. The goal toward which he's now resolutely set his face, the finish line toward which every muscle in his body strains. On the mountain that night not long ago, even Moses with Elijah appeared in glory and spoke, not of his having arrived, but they spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His arrival in the fullness of time was all about his departure. And then the next morning, at the foot of that very mountain, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
So he's on his way southward to Jerusalem, and we with him, and when he gets there, he dies. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Luke tells his gospel story in this wonderful telescopic way. Here's what I mean. He alternates his focus, zooming in from the big picture of this cosmic redemption about to be accomplished, right on down to the many little pictures of many little individuals who come to him with their needs, with their wants, with their requests. And then once he's dealt with those, he zooms right back out again to give us a panorama of the redemption Christ is even then accomplishing among men. The big picture of the gospel, the wide-angle lens, shows us, among other things, the ongoing resolution of all humanity into two distinct opposing camps. People are evaluating what they see and hear from this man. They're considering the evidence and then taking their stand either with him or against him. And preaching the gospel of God's kingdom serves as the catalyst in this separation process. More and more people are hearing the gospel of God's kingdom, this good news centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And whoever hears this news simply does not and cannot remain neutral to it. It naturally separates people. It brings division because the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ isn't some happy rainbow call to unity and spiritual diversity. The gospel is a call to take a stand for the truth, the sober truth. So on the one hand, as Luke tells his story, we see the rising opposition to Jesus. On the other hand, we're simultaneously seeing his recruitment of more and more persons not only to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ themselves, but also to become the intrepid heralds of this good news. Jesus is raising a gospel army, as it were. Already at the beginning of this ninth chapter, he's sent these twelve select trained young men through all the villages of Galilee. As we'll see next week, at the beginning of chapter 10, he multiplies that number by a factor of six, sending not twelve, but seventy-two faithful people recruited to go before him and preach the kingdom all along the route he intends to take to Jerusalem. In the big picture, the cross that's waiting for him there in Jerusalem is central. Christ must go, he must die, and all of human history hinges on that one death. But we're not history makers on the grand scale, are we? We're not. This gospel's not about us, we're just private individuals. We're the little people history doesn't care about, right? Well, it just so happens that our passage today is about individuals. Individual people who hear the word of Christ, people who at some distinct, blessed moment in time hear the personal call to follow him. And so we discover that each one of us and the decisions we make in response to this gospel call, each one of us, is important as well.
Perhaps you and I today aren't called to be apostles in the strictest sense of the word, but I'm called to respond to this gospel of the kingdom, and so are you. We've simply got to do something with this news we've heard, news of his sovereign, gracious reign over the world and over us. We've got to do something. Now, a good Bible atlas shows you that the straight line as the crow flies distance from Capernaum in Galilee down to Jerusalem in Judea is just over 80 miles. 80 miles. But traveling at the speed of life, life that is in the first century, using the available roads and the footpaths of the first century, and taking the many necessary detours of the first century, like the detour we just had to take around Samaria, you can be sure the journey was an eventful one. Along the way, some, no doubt, for a variety of reasons, drew back. They fell out of the march. And along the way, others joined. And all along the route, there'd be villages filled with people who were in a position to consider what they were going to do with the inward and outward promptings to follow this remarkable man. Our passage this morning presents us with three of these people Jesus encountered along the way. People considering the clear gospel call to follow him. Now it's interesting that Luke doesn't give us the end of each person's story. He doesn't tell us how each one ultimately decided, which is fine. That's fine because life's not like that, is it? Life's not all tidy and clear-cut. At any given moment, life is just a snapshot. It's an ambiguous collection of loose ends. We don't know how things are going to turn out. And that's exactly what Luke gives us here. The fleeting moments of three separate people interacting with Jesus in three separate occasions along the way. Because the fact of the matter is, we don't need to know the end of their particular stories or the end of any other people's stories. Because the decisions of other people with respect to following Jesus or not ultimately is a matter between those people and Jesus. They have no bearing on my own decision or on yours. The Lord knows those who are His. But these three snapshots give us plenty of grist for the mill of thought as we consider our own call to follow Jesus. Clearly, you and I need to know from the very beginning that discipleship isn't a joyride. There's a cost involved. Apparently, none of these three know it yet, but at the very moment of their respective interactions with Jesus, he is a man on his way to a horrible, horrible death. By God's design, he is. And a disciple isn't above his master. If evil men mistreat and kill him, why should any of us, any of us, think we're going to escape trouble ourselves? Shouldn't we expect, rather, to become targets ourselves? There's trouble ahead for the follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is. You may call it guilt by association. 
or you may think of it merely as life in covenant with this man of sorrows acquainted with grief, however you look at it. Following Jesus as his disciple is likely going to require the surrender of some very precious aspects of the life you once knew. We'll consider three aspects of your former life to which you've got to be ready to say goodbye as you follow Jesus. For memory's sake, we'll call them standard accommodations, sacred obligations, and sweet associations. Standard accommodations, sacred obligations, and sweet associations. Following Jesus may mean some nights spent in the woods, figuratively or literally. It may come to that. After all, you're on your way to Zion, but you're not there yet. And though you're headed south toward Jerusalem, the general gradient of the road is upward, which means that at the end of a day you're tired and every day farther from home. There are going to be nights you spend along the roadside with them and other like-minded people who, just like you, have heard the gospel call, they've considered the cost of nearness to Jesus and found the hardship to be a real bargain, just to be near him. Now, you've noticed by now, certainly, that in a rhetorical sense, I've been placing us alongside Jesus and his apostolic school of the kingdom. And indeed, theirs was a very clear and present loss of standard accommodations. They experienced a kingly felt loss of personal comforts, being with him. But his warning to this first enthusiastic man who came to him in verses 57 and 58, with the promise of following him wherever he goes, the warnings for us 21st century Christians as well. Many of the dark places on the globe today where men, women, and children are put out of their homes for loving and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the States, where we're unlikely to be put out of our homes for that reason, still we see faithful Christian husbands being put out of their marriages by faithless or apostate wives who simply will not put up with biblical headship and order in their homes. Still we see faithful Christian employees taking a financial hit for remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Still we see Christian ministers at or near the bottom of the pay scale among the so-called white-collar professionals. When I graduated from seminary 35 years ago to enter my first pastorate, my household income immediately dropped by more than a third. I was doing much better financially as a student than I was as a pastor. Consider the cost of following Jesus. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But of course, accommodations and standard of living are mere matters of personal comfort, and for the sake of Jesus, stout hearts can live a long time by the campfire. Much harder situations may still await the disciple, as Christian duties rearrange our long-held personal priorities and even rearrange our most sacred obligations. 
Your following Jesus may require of you things or forbearance from things that absolutely break your heart. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Do you know of a human obligation any more sacred than the final honoring of your parents in death? I'm not sure I do. My father died when I was 19, and my elder brother, who was a young minister at the time, officiated at the funeral. And years later, my mother died when I was 46, and I counted it my turn to do the honor. It's just something that redeemed sons and daughters do, must do, are compelled to do, honor their parents, both in life and in death. And Jesus here says that even this most sacred human obligation takes a back seat to following him and proclaiming his kingdom. That's extraordinary. It's breathtaking, isn't it? It breaks your heart. But then didn't he say somewhere that whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me? And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You may be asked, for the sake of your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, to surrender the standard accommodations that are generally available and expected in civil society, and that's a bother. You may, for the sake of that vital allegiance, be required to surrender even your most sacred obligations to the honored dead. And that's a heartbreaker. But there's nothing to be done about either of these things when weighed in the balance of serving your Lord Jesus Christ. One more, at least, came to him out of the crowds that lined the route leading to Jerusalem. I will follow you, Lord, he said, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. What request could be more reasonable than this one? Lord, just give me ten minutes to kiss my people goodbye. I'll be back. You don't even need to stop and wait for me. I'll catch up with you. To those of us who love our families more than anything else on earth, who count them to be our sweetest associations, Jesus' reply might seem surprisingly brusque, might seem to be rather unfeeling. But as I said earlier, we don't know the end of the story of any of these three would-be followers. Jesus told him neither yes nor no, did he? Neither go nor stay. He did much better than that made a point to weigh in the decision as to whether and when to follow. A factor to consider. For that man to consider in his particular situation and for us to consider in our respective situations. When he calls me by the gospel, will I go? 
will I go promptly? When he calls me to put my hand to the plow and plow deep and plow straight for the proper sowing of the gospel seed to bear fruit in people's lives for generations to come, when I undertake the work committed to me, What's behind me isn't nearly as significant as what lies before me. Jesus told this man who so dearly loved his family, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Beloved, for the sake of Jesus, won't you be ready to surrender, if necessary, your sweetest associations on earth? I pray it may never come to that. May you never have to make that particular gut-wrenching either-or decision, but many people do. And we honor Christ, and we do ourselves and our loved ones a huge kindness if we think the matter through in advance. How much does the privilege of following Jesus to his death mean to me? Here's what the prize of knowing and following Christ to his death meant to the Apostle Paul. Whatever gain I had, he said, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not that I have already obtained this, this conformity, that is, to Christ in His death and resurrection. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 16 centuries later, as this gospel of Jesus Christ was regaining lost ground in Europe and the British Isles, A reformed Christian tinker by the name of John Bunyan wrote of a dream he had while lying in prison for preaching this gospel. He dreamt of a man born in the city of destruction who awakened to his sin and peril meets an evangelist who urges him to flee the doomed city. So I saw in my dream, he says, that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life! Life! Eternal life! Dear friends, I urge you this morning soberly to consider the cost of following Jesus to his death and resurrection and ascension to his present reign in glory. Put everything and everyone that's precious to you on one plate of the golden scales. Feel the sheer weight of it all. 
This is your whole life, your whole living, your whole substance. Then let Jesus merely touch the other plate. Let him breathe the gospel call onto it. Let his mere shadow fall across the counterbalance. Watch and see how that which once seemed so substantial suddenly seems so wanting. Oh, friends, bring your wife with you if you can. Bring your little ones. But if they simply will not come, God give you the grace to put your fingers in your ears and run on, crying like the pilgrim you've become. Life. Life. Eternal life. May it be so for you. Amen.